собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И привидели их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. I'm very excited to welcome Alexander Herbert to the podcast to talk about Russian punk rock. I've been wanting to do a show on Russian punk for a while now, and Alexander happened to email me about the oral history project he's working on, on the Russian punk scene from the Soviet period to the present. Before we get to the interview, I wanted to give listeners a heads up that Alexander mentions many punk bands in this interview. He was kind enough to provide a list of past and present Russian punk bands and websites where you can find Russian punk music. You can find all this information on the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org. Alexander Herbert is a graduate student at the University of Chicago working on modern Russian history. He has been involved in the Russian punk rock scene extensively for about four years and has contributed articles to Razor Cake and Maximum Rock and Roll. Along with his degree work and raising a one-year-old, Alexander has been compiling a collection of interviews, fanzines, lyrics, and records on Russian punk from 1978 to 2015. Here's Alexander Herbert. So you're working on a book about Russian punk, and it, it seems like what you're doing is, it's almost like an oral history of sorts, and you can explain that in more detail if that's indeed what it is. But why don't we start by having you talk about how you came up with the project and, and what is it all about? Punk in general, I think across countries, has this tradition of oral histories, both in DIY publications and in official publications. The real big one is the Legs McNeil book, Please Kill Me, which is a compilation of interviews about New York punk rock. And that is sort of the the base influence for the project that I'm working on now. I discovered Russian punk rock, you can say, when I was interning at the Moscow State History Museum in Red Square. I was alone there. I mean, I was just starting to study Russian, so I didn't know the language too well, but I knew it enough to get around. And uh, so I went to one of Moscow's big malls, and in there was a Levi's store. And in the Levi's store was working, uh, who's now my friend, his name is Alexei. He's in a band called the Hopes and Disasters, but he also runs a record label with his friend Boggy. It's called East Beat Records. And when I went in there, he could tell that I listened to punk rock. I have some tattoos in my arms and stuff like that. And uh, he spoke a mix of English and Russian, but enough for me to understand. So he asked me, have you gone to a punk rock show since you've been here? And I said, honestly, I didn't know that there was punk rock here. So he invited me and he said, well, let's meet up here on Tverskaya, you know, on Friday and you'd come to a show with me. And so it started there. I started going to shows with him frequently, and through him, I met various other peoples. And when I got back to the States, I was talking to my friends in Boston. I was talking about Russian punk rock and what it's all about. And I very jokingly said, you know, I could write a whole book about this. One of my friends sort of pushed me on the idea. He's also a scholar. He was like, well, you should try to put something together if you can get enough interviews and present it there, because the impression of Russian punk rock today, at that time, it was about 2014 was Pussy Riot. He said, if there is actually a punk rock scene that is not Pussy Riot, then it might be worth telling that story. So it sort of, it started there. And from there, I contacted other people like Vladimir Kozlov, who has worked on Siberian punk, Yegor Letov and Gorozhdanskaya Oborona, and Steinholt and Rayback, who have also worked on various subcultures and Russia and post-Soviet space. And, you know, they directed me to different resources. And, and then I went to Russia in 2015 and gathered some interviews uh, in the summer. And, and what are you interested in asking them? Like, what kind of questions do you ask these punks in, in Russia about their the subculture, their participation in the history of punk? So I start with really broad questions and try to get down to... So the, the more that you study it, the more you sort of see a sort of timeline of Russian punk. And when you ask people the broad questions, you start to fit them into those timelines. So it really depends on who I'm interviewing. For example, the place where my work starts is in Leningrad in 1979 and up to 89. And the questions that I start there are, you know, very broad. How did you discover punk? What did punk mean to you? And they have fairly consistent 
answers, surprisingly. Not all of them are friends, but their answers are uh, similar. And compared to somebody who, from my generation, for example, who grew up in the 90s, who discovered punk in the 90s in Russia, and I would ask them, you know, how did you discover punk? And their answer would be, you know, I uh, one one of my friends in uh, Izhevsk, who also owns a record label, he discovered punk because he injured his finger and he was in a hospital bed and the person next to him listened to Karoli Shut and Naive and made him a, a disc with all these songs and gave it to him while he was laid up in the hospital. And that's sort of where he discovered punk, you might say. And now he's Izhevsk's biggest purveyor of punk. Everybody has these different stories, but you can sort of fit them into time period. There are also other people who got into punk from more political angles that they saw what was going on in the early 2000s with the uh, fascist or Nazi movement. And I want to say, just like everybody else, that when using the word fascist, it just means more broadly right wing. It doesn't necessarily mean how we might think of fascism. But seeing that, they wanted an alternative, and they found that through the aggressiveness of that punk rock or hardcore can be, and so they got into punk through that. And, you know, the the bands that they discover first are very different from Karoli Shoot and Naive. These people found Western bands like Minor Threat and Black Flag that were more to the point than some of these Russian bands might have been. Well, let's talk about the origins of punk rock in the Soviet Union, since you do start in the late 70s and early 80s. So how did punk find its way into the Soviet Union? And what did punk mean to some of its first fans? So I like the way that Alexei Yurchak put it together in his book, when talking about rock music more generally, that it's sort of a way that people are articulating an idea or a stance that's not necessarily against the regime, but it's against sort of the monotony of, of Soviet life. And punk rock particularly becomes part of that. And one of the stories that Alexei talks about in his book actually is the nude snowball fight that ensues in the streets of Leningrad one day as a spontaneous necro-realist event. And actually, the people that he talks about, uh, Yevgeny Yufit, is not only the purveyor of this necro-realist idea, but he's also the person who suggests punk rock to the first punk rocker in Leningrad. And so those that necro-realist tradition that Yurchek was talking about is very tied to punk rock. And so what happens is Yufit, who is more in touch with a lot of Western radio stations, he recommends to one of his friends, Svin, who is a, a rock music lover, he introduces him to the Sex Pistols, and he says, you know, look at these idiots. We can do this here. They're not doing anything that's politically dangerous, but they're just presenting themselves as dirty and unclean, you know, punk rockers. And we could do something like that here. And so Sven takes the image and the idea, and he rolls with it. And Sven, which, as you might know, is uh, Russian for pig. Uh, his real name is Andrei Panov, but I'll refer to him as Sven. He's from a very cultured background. His mother is a ballerina in Leningrad. His father is a is living in Israel at the time, and you know he gets in a lot of problems with that. His high school teachers don't really treat him that well for having a father who lives in a quote enemy country. So he's trained in the theatrical, and so what he does is through his band Automatichiski Udovletvritelni or the Automatic Satisfiers, which is just a play on words from the Sex Pistols, he creates this new rock band that performances of Automatic Satisfiers are famous for his pants having fallen down. And, you know, he, he wore these jeans that had a, a big hole in the butt, and so you could see his underwear, or if he wasn't wearing underwear, you could see more. And um, he... he gathers a reputation for himself as being a part of this uh, collective band that is really just defined by him and trying to do these performances with other bands like Akvarium and Kino, who, or later Kino, who are more, you might say, musicians than he is. And uh, even um, Artyom Trotsky, the rock critic in Russia, in his book back in the USSR and in other publications he's done, He's described his first encounters with Svin 
the impression is very palpable, you might say, as Sven being this reject of the rock culture. And very purposefully, it seems to me, that he was trying to maintain that image of the reject. You know, this early first generation of Russian, Soviet Russian punks, it, it makes me wonder about how do they see themselves now? And how do they see punk now? Not, not the punk they were doing, but say contemporary punk rock now. It's a very mixed bag. So another person that we didn't talk about, which we will talk about, is uh, Fyodor Lavrov or Fedi, who is also writing music a little bit, maybe a year or two after Automatic Satisfyer started in uh, Hotel Samas Kreninias, their self-eradication department. And his, the music that he's writing is very, at the time, political. He describes it as uh, Russia's first anarcho-punk. He now, for example, he records bands from all over post-Soviet space in his home studio. And so he's very supportive of contemporary rock and punk rock music. And there's also Yevgeny Titov, who was a bass player for Automatic Satisfiers, who is the, I don't know what you would say, the purveyor of the legacy, I guess. He he does annual shows in celebration of Automatic Satisfiers and he, he does cover songs and he keeps the name alive. But when I was in Leningrad and I was able to go to one of those shows, most of the people attending the shows were from that generation. And the, the younger people who were there didn't seem like they were part of an actual punk rock subculture of their own age. And so it's very divided. And I, I would say that the people from that generation are very supportive of punk rock today as it is in Russia and I would say that not just for monetary or recognition purposes, but I think that they want to reach out to contemporary punks. But it's not so easy because a lot of the youth today reject that stuff as sort of, you know, it's backwards Soviet rock music and we don't want anything to do with it because now we have these Western, these perfected Western recordings of minor threat and stuff like that. And so we have something different. We have an alternative. And so there's this sort of give and take from it. In speaking about the, the relationship between Soviet punk and Soviet rock, and one you know has the is tempted to put them in the same category, but in reading some of the, the interviews you gave me that you've done, it seems that some Russian punks were attracted to punk in reaction against bands like Akvarium and Kino, as much as Soviet society in general. So how do how did Russian punk see themselves in relation to Soviet rock? I think when when talking about Svin and Automatic Satisfiers, at first his attempt to make a band was to try to fit into the Russian rock tradition. But then I think he quickly realized that you couldn't have a band with the same image as the Sex Pistols and also exist within this refined Russian rock tradition. And so then he he took on the role of the outcast of rock music. I think later on, particularly in the early 80s and then in Perestroika, it does become a self-conscious uh, rejection of Russian rock music, which tends to have, you know, really lyrical lyrics, almost like poems. And it's it's very um, refined and non-political, non-really social messages, or at least powerful enough social social messages for the people who become punk rockers, you might say. So bands like Abiet Nasmeshik or Narodnia Apochenia, who in during the Perestroika years very consciously take on the punk image. You might think of them as the clash of the Soviet Union or something like that. They are really setting themselves up as something different from that rock tradition, but at the same time, because Perestroika changes things in many ways, they become compatible with it. And so, whereas Automatic Satisfiers had a harder time playing at the Leningrad Rock Club in the early years because of their dirty and uh, unfiltered image, later on in Perestroika, these bands have pretty easy time getting into the rock club. Although I will say that Automatic Satisfiers always have a hard time getting into the Leningrad Rock Club. I think they played a few festivals, but I'm not quite sure why. There there really is no reason. I mean, the, the way that the Leningrad Rock Club worked was that you had to submit your lyrics and your music to 
people who were effectively Komsomol organizers who ran the rock club. And if they didn't like your lyrics, they would just reject you and they would say that you weren't allowed in. And this happened to Sven and the Automatic Satisfiers a lot. And, and a lot of people who were involved with the band or knew the band say they make the claim that it wasn't because of the lyrics, but it was more because the band had a reputation for what Sven did on stage or what he didn't do. And, and, but there's no way to get to that unless I could interview the people who were considering them for membership, which I, there's no names for that. Well, let's listen to and talk about some punk rock, Russian punk rock. Um, the first band is Self-Eradication Department, which you've mentioned, and the song is called Military Monarchy, and it's from 1984. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> song sounds to me, if I would make a contemporary reference, it sounds like indie rock, right? It has this very lo-fi sound. It doesn't have the hard sound that even early punk does. So what, what can you tell us about the band and this song? The band Self-Eradication Department is sort of my greatest discovery, I guess, of this chapter dealing with Leningrad punk, because it's not talked about much. Not a lot of people are familiar with Betty's earlier career, which is through this band, because the band was actually banned in the Soviet Union. And sometimes I mess the, the timeline up, but the story is that he recorded this album, including with this song on it as a, as a tape track, and gave it to his friends. And his friends used to hold these sort of lavish drinking parties in the apartment, and one night it got raided. And at the end of the raid, his friend turned to him and said, hey, all your your tape recordings are gone. All of your artwork for this recording is gone. We don't know what happened to it. And sure enough, Fetty gets arrested and he gets interrogated by the KGB and they, they show him all his stuff and they say, you know, what the hell is this? And, you know, the the song that you just listened to, the lyrics, especially the chorus, Reagan and Andropov effed all of Europe from behind. It's not really lyrics that you want the KGB to listen to if you're going to be interrogated by them because there's really no defense for that. And it's important also to recognize that Fetty at this time, this is 84. So this is a couple years after Automatic Satisfiers, but he's pretty known within the circle as as a young musician. He's not he's never played at the rock club. Although he he gives some of his music to Boris from Akvarium, who tells him, you know, you need to work on your music a little bit more before you join the rock club. And he turns Fetty away. So I know at that point, Fetty rejects the rock club completely. And later on, he gets stuck in a mental hospital because they pin him for schizophrenia. Now, I've talked to him extensively. I've spent a lot of time with Fetty. We still talk a lot. And I can guarantee you that he doesn't have schizophrenia. But 
he was he was put in a mental hospital there where he tells me that while he's there he sees a lot of people being neglected or mistreated and so he he takes up this sort of compassionate role of caring for people even though he's a patient just like they are so then he gets out of course he's told that he can't play this music anymore and so he starts other side projects with his friends but the whole story is sort of i think in contrast to the rest of what happens in in the early Leningrad scene, it's really it's a great case study because most of these bands like DDT and Televisor and and even Sector Gaza, who come during the Perestroika years, they're not as overtly political as Self Eradication Department is. And so Fetty's case demonstrates that what happens when you are brave enough to test the system in that way to to see what happened. And and he becomes really known throughout Leningrad as the person who's willing to test the system. And he gets arrested before this happens. He's he's arrested the first time for wearing a shirt with a swastika painted on it. And on the back, it has the red star and it says no law for fools on it. And, and you know, he in, it, in his underwear, he's just wearing his t-shirt and his underwear. And he goes out and he's walking around Leningrad and that. And so, of course, you know, he's picked up really quick. Nobody wants that out there. And, you know, at that point, they just tell him, you know, you're being you yourself are being a fool. Take the shirt off and go back to work. So he does that, of course. And then later on, this music thing happens. He says to this day that the only reason he got out of the mental hospital was because his mom did something. He's not sure what his mom did, but he thinks. And he and his mom denies it, but he thinks that his mother did something to get him out, but he's not sure what it was. All right, well, let's listen to another song. This is a song by a band called Straight Edge, and the song's called Papa, and it's from the 1990s. So it's a, it's, might want to say the next generation well, of, it's from of the, Russian pop. it's from the early 2000s. Oh, it's from the early 2000s. Okay, I wasn't sure. From the early 2000s. So let, let's listen to this and, and have you comment on it. The musical contrast from the first song is absolutely clear. But I want you to comment on on two things. First, the name itself in English being straight edge and if it has any relationship to, say, straight edge punk and, and the lifestyle that goes along with that. And second, why did you pick this song? To, what does it represent? The connection is, is absolutely from minor threat in the straight edge tradition from uh, the DC scene. I picked the song because I see it as... If you consider the early Leningrad scene to be the shot fired in the dark, and then what happens in the 90s as sort of the result of that, I think that this song symbolizes a a completely new idea and purpose of punk in Russia. And it's, it's worth sort of going through the timeline story of it. And so after what we were talking about with Fetty and with Automatic Satisfiers, 
perestroika happens and as a result of perestroika all of these new bands come into the Leningrad Rock Club and new venues are opening up for people to perform in Sector Gaza becomes in the really late perestroika and early 90s the sort of the image of punk in Russia which is controversial a lot of people don't consider them punk although their attitude was certainly i would say pretty punk rock and then in the fall of the Soviet Union, Seva Gekko, who is the, I believe, the violinist for Aquarium, he travels to New York. He sees CBGB. He comes back to Russia. And, you know, his dream is to open up a similar club where the underground can flourish. And so he opens Club Tom Tom in uh, St. Petersburg. And this place is known for drug use, violence. Some people, you know, they say Tom Tom is a lifestyle. Some people say, I did everything I could to stay away from Tom Tom. And so th so it, it's very sort of contrasted the way that it's, it's debated, the role of Tom Tom. But it's, no, it, it's, it's pretty universal that Tom Tom created punk rock in Russia to a certain extent, or at least what it is today. This is where Karoli Shoot played their first, some of their first gigs, and they really took on their name there. The band Vibrator becomes really famous for there. And even Moscow bands who come a little bit later, like Tarakani and Naive, they also travel to Tom Tom and they have a lot to say about it. And it's also at this time where you see, that is the early 90s, where Moscow finally finds itself, I guess you could say, within punk rock. So like I said, bands like Tarakani and Naive and uh, Solomon Yenote, Boris Usov become the purveyors of Moscow punk rock, which is very it operates in two ways. And so Tarakani and Naive sort of symbolize the, the more commercial rendition of punk rock. Tarakani sounds like a, a, uh, a copy of, almost a copy in the early years of Green Day, Green Day's early stuff like Dookie. Naive is very original, I would say, in their music. But then what Boris Usov and his following sort of constitute the Moscow underground in Salomene Note. And what happens is you have the commercialization of punk rock, and then you have a hardening of the underground, which these underground shows in Moscow, they're, they're played in people's apartments and their dachas. In order to find them, you need to know somebody who can give you the address and the information about it. And so by the early 2000s, people are both flocking to both either one of these scenes or reacting against them. And this is where the idea of fascism within the scene comes from, because it's not they're not necessarily racist or fascist, but they are right-wing Gopniks who start going to punk shows, uh, the, either the commercial ones or the underground ones, and they start attacking people pretty violently. I mean, at, at least this is how it's described to me by uh, people who were part of the scene at that time. And then in the early 2000s, Ivan Hutorskoy is killed in, in St. Petersburg by a right-wing activist. And uh, Ivan was one of the first activists for the Antifa movement in Leningrad. And so, and he's, he's really well known for his anti-fascist, anti-racist, homophobic, anti-sexist sentiments. He's very left-wing. You might even call him pro-communist. But he's killed outside of his apartment. And the government reacts very harshly to this by within Department A, that is the Department of Extremism, they classify both the Antifa and the fascist movements as extremist organizations. And so what happens at this time is there's both a flooding of violence within both Moscow and Leningrad, but then also a flooding of police presence who are trying to crack down on, on either the Antifa or the fascist movements. And so this song by Straight Edge, Papa, saying by Peter. I won't give his last name. I don't think he would want me to. Uh, but he, he's an exile. He's, he's actually wanted in Russia right now for his activism. Through his music and through his own activism, he's also published a book that I just translated into English. It hasn't been published yet, but it's called Exile or Exodus. And it's about his activity and in the Antifa movement. But he uses punk rock and he uses his band Straight Edge as a way to I think what he would describe is straighten out people's minds, particularly young, impressionable people, in order to instill more 
grounded values and so that none of these people who are just getting into punk decide to lean right wing. So uh, the song that we listen to, it's called Papa because the song is about how he's going to raise his own children. And so, you know, some of the lyrics is that he would not give them phones or fashionable clothes. He would teach them how to live on the street, how to reject the police, and at the same time, make sure that they're humble, that they feed homeless people on the streets. And that's what this song is about. And so in a very clear way, he's rejecting the material culture that sort of, as I said, this parallel punk rock culture has bred between the commercial Terakani and Naive and the underground. And so he's trying to uphold the underground by saying, in order to uphold the underground, our ideals need to be hardened. And through hardening our ideals, we can, you know, combat the fascist enemy that is these people running around and killing our friends like Ivan Kutorskoy. It's also worth noting that Ivan was a good friend of Peter's. And so uh, when this happened, I think it really hardened his resolve to to get this message out to people who are in the scene or who are just starting to get in the scene. I want to talk more about this relationship between the commercial and the underground because it's it's interesting that it parallels something similar going on in the United States at the time with the commercial success of bands like Green Day and the punk scene that I was involved in and my friends in, in the punk scene. There was a major reaction and a similar hardening of what is punk. And there was a, a whole discourse like in magazines like uh, Maximum Rock and Roll at the time. I remember the, all of the lots of articles trying to define what punk is and to really trying to hold on to or react against its commercialization. Is, is there something similar going on in Russia and in its own way? Absolutely. I think it started in the 90s. I want to I do want to preface that. I myself don't necessarily have a definition of punk. That's actually one of the broader questions that I asked all of my interviewees was, what does punk mean to them? And that, you know, it's very ideological. To some, it's it's more fashion-based. So it, it, that sort of varies across the line. But, yeah, in thinking of the commercialization of it, see, in the United States, at least if you're if you're really into the underground punk culture in the United States, you're taught that those commercial bands are quote-unquote sellouts, and that, you know, if you listen to them, then you're not that cool amongst your friends who don't listen to them, but they probably do listen to them, they just don't do it around you. But I don't see that same sort of rejection as strong in Russia. So, for example, bands like Terakani and Naive, who are the the pillars of commercial Moscow punk. I know people who are very involved in the underground who still listen to these bands and still go to their concerts and, and love them just as much as they might have when they found them. Even Koroli uh, Shoot and Sector Gaza, who are really in the early 90s, I would say really the first well-known Russian punk bands. Even they are listed by some people as their biggest influences for getting into punk. And so that that sort of rejection of the mainstream, for example, it's not as strong as it is in the West. It's still, there's still some of it, but not as much. I would say, though, that the Antifa movement is very different in that case, that in their view, music has to have, the music has to have some socially palpable message and that if it doesn't then it's not contributing anything to unifying and making the scene whole again after the the fascist activities in the early 2000s which i think that the scene is still coming off of that that whole experience and so no i was going to i was going to ask the, to have you talk more about the role of politics in punk because it seems that from the what you were saying a few minutes ago about the violence between within punks particularly between the fascists and the left-wing anti-fascists, that it's a very ideological atmosphere for this. So what role does what role does politics play, but also the politics of do-it-yourself or DIY? How does that fit into, into the punk scene? Yeah, I want to answer this. It's a good question. I want to answer it in two ways. The first way, well, well, the second way will be about Pussy Riot, but I'll talk about that in a minute. The first way is talking about politics in the scene itself. It's also mixed 
and I keep saying that because it it is so different across the board. A lot of the people that I'm very close with in Moscow, they're sort of apolitical. They they see Putin as I would say a strong leader, but they fully recognize that he's he's not the world's favorite leader. Uh, but their lyrics aren't necessarily politically charged. They're socially charged about abstaining from drugs and alcohol, for example, in in the straight edge movements or defending yourself and your family and your friends and all that sort of uh, scene unity stuff. But none of the lyrics are, to this day, I would say, overtly political. There are a few bands that uphold it, but they don't have a huge following, they, or, or even a following to the size that a real underground band would have. I mean, if you consider something like feminism to be political, then there's plenty of that in Russia and in Moscow today. So even, as you said, the DIY scene itself, which publishes underground literature all the time, it's, it tends to be interviews with other bands from the scene or translated interviews from Western bands. And then sort of an article similar to what I published in Razor Cake, which is overviews of certain cities. And so somebody, somebody might write an overview of Omsk punk rock or something like that and publish it in their DIY zine. And so even in those DIY zines, it's not so political or politicized as much as it's just trying to harden and introduce people to other micro scenes throughout the country. But as I said, if you consider feminism and other sort of ideas like that, social social movements to be political, which I consider them political, then that certainly exists in Moscow. Although the the feminist punk bands that I know are much more quiet than Pussy Riot is when it comes to it. I mean, the the thing that separates Pussy Riot from female Russian punk bands is precisely their activism or the the extent to which they're willing to act to be active. So I just I think in the book that I'm working on in the publication I'm working on, one of the only chapters that will actually be written by me is the chapter on Pussy Riot and. I still don't have a title for it. I sort of I like the idea of the the paradox of Pussy Riot because it really is a paradox. So, I mean, I'm going to assume that most listeners know the story of Pussy Riot by now. And so when I was there in 2015, it was the year after they were arrested for the cathedral protest and one of the questions I closed my interviews with with contemporary and with the people from the 90s was their opinion of Pussy Riot and Pussy Riot's role in the scene. And again, it's sort of split down the middle. So Dimitri Spirin of Terakani, who is, you might consider him like the Johnny Rotten of Russian punk rock. So everybody knows him. Maybe you don't like Terakani, but you still know him. And you probably do like Terakani. You just don't tell anyone about it. He was the only person to say, to list, because the, the question, one of the questions was posed as, if you were to list five of the most influential Russian punk bands, who would they be? And he was the only one to list Pussy Riot as number one. And one of his bandmates was there and he laughed and he said, is that a joke? And Dimitri said, why is that a joke? He said, are, he, and he turned to his bandmate and he said, are you willing to go to jail for your lyrics? And of course, his bandmate, you know, shut up and was like, no. And so Dimitri's reasoning was that even if their music isn't punk rock, even if what they're doing isn't punk rock or necessarily because it's it's they don't actually have instruments in their protest. They have the recordings and then they do the jumping around. So whether or not it's punk rock is debatable. But the attitude is certainly there. The ideas are certainly there of what they're trying to do. So the paradox seems to me that it completely depends on one's definition of punk rock. Is it that punk rock is more musical? Or is it that punk rock is more socially active? Or an attitude. Or attitude. And in the article that I just wrote, I don't sway either way. And I don't really have an opinion of whether I consider Pussy Riot to be punk rock or not. I think they are, but I think they also aren't. And when I asked feminist punk bands in Moscow about their opinion, all of their reactions were similar to Dimitri's in saying that what they're doing is extremely important but they're certainly not the first Russian feminist punk. There's an interview where one of the members, I think Masha maybe, I'm sorry, it was Nadia, says in one of the interviews, I think with David Remnick from The New Yorker, that, that Pussy Riot 
had to discover and create Russian feminist punk or political Russian feminist punk. And so, you know, I showed the people I was interviewing that interviewed that part of the interview. And I said, what's your opinion of it? And they all said that no way a Russian feminist punk existed way before Pussy Riot. It has a tradition that goes back to the 80s, the 80s scene. The sort of main band there is Jenskaya Bolizin, although members of that band would tell you that what they were doing weren't feminist. They were just women playing punk music amongst male-dominated scene. So it sort, it sort of mixed that way. And then, so the people today would tell you that what Pussy Riot is doing is extremely important for getting feminist ideas out there and for getting, I guess, the social injustices of the Putin regime out to the world. But they would be very apprehensive to consider it Russia's first feminist punk. Now, what I'll say in what's part of the article is that when Nadia does her interview, she says that Pussy Riot created political feminist punk. And so that adjective of political, I think, is very important because, as I said, Jenskaya Bolizin in the 80s, their lyrics might be pseudo-political, but they're not overtly political. And so I think that there's some truth to what Nadia says, but I, I'm not sure that she purposefully made that point. But with the addition of the adjective political, I think that there is some truth in what she said, that Pussy Riot is the first political Russian feminist punk. Now, our politics and feminism, can they be synonymous? To a certain extent, I think they can, but they can also not be synonymous, I think. You've talked a lot about punk in, in St. Petersburg and in Moscow, but you've also written about punk in the provinces. Talk about the punk scene outside of the capitals. What's it like? Is it distinct from the capitals? Tell about your experience. My experience in Izhevsk, in Nizhny Novgorod, and even in Kazan, I think, hardens my opinion that there's something more charming about punk in the provinces for a number of reasons. The first being that the ways in which the scenes in the provinces are pretty young. The the article I wrote on Izhevsk it starts in the 90s. It doesn't start in, in the 80s or even in the 70s. It, it's, it has a definite beginning in the 90s. And, and it begins mostly from Russian bands, whereas you might say that in Moscow and in St. Petersburg, it starts through Western bands. Well, in the provinces, the first bands that people are listening to are actually Russian bands. And so I already talked about uh, Sasha in Izhevsk, who runs Teenage Waste Records, and he's also part of a band called Scrap Monsters, and he was in this band Minefield, which was which gained recognition throughout the West of Maximum Rock and Roll, even had a featured interview with Minefield. And he is pretty well known throughout Izhevsk, and so his interview with him was very useful for my purposes um, for writing the history of Izhevsk. And so I asked him questions like that on his opinion of the difference between Moscow and St. Petersburg. And he had a very interesting story to tell me that he sort of said is paradigmic of every experience he has in Moscow and St. Petersburg. And that is when you play a show in either of those cities, people just sort of stand still like like zombies. They, and they just watch you. They don't they don't they're not moving. And he said that he thinks it's because they've seen it already. So the people the people in uh, St. Petersburg and Moscow are so saturated with punk rock at this point that they don't feel that same youthful energy that should come out of something such as punk rock. Uh, but when he plays in the provinces, not only in Zhevsk, but he plays in any other provincial city, he says that the people are going nuts for him and, and for his band. And so there's a huge contrast between the cities who have seen it all already and then the, the provinces who have limited exposure to bands outside of their own province. And another story that I can tell in that regard is uh, my experience in Nizhny Novgorod, which is sort of similar. In Nizhny's underground scene, I was invited to a show in which I had to meet up with everybody in the woods first or, or in the public park first. And so I went to the public park and one of the leaders of one of the bands, you know, he shined a flashlight and he said, who are you? Who are you here with? And you know, I had to tell him who I was with. And he said, oh, okay, you're, you're the American doing interviews. I said, yeah. And so, and so I, I went with them, you know, we walked through the woods. At this point, 
it's pretty scary being with a bunch of kids walking in the dark through the woods in Russia. But we came across this sort of old abandoned, I don't, I don't know what it was, a factory or old abandoned apartment or something like that, that its main power source was an extension cord running from the building next door. And, and you know, so it was an extension cord and then it had all of the outlets and adapters plugged into this extension cord and then it had all of the amps and everything plugged in through that. and. It was crazy. It was like a house destruction party. I mean, they started playing and people were jumping on the ceiling and the roofs and you're tempted to be like, where's the adult here? <laughs> but that was the point. There was no adult there. And so it was high energy and and very palpable that the people who were attending this concert, who they all knew each other, they felt something within each other's presence and through the music and through the lyrics that actually meant something to them. And I think... If I were to define what punk rock is, I think that that's precisely what it is. And and as Sasha said, that high energy, that very literally undergroundness, doesn't exist in the cities as much anymore. So I I, I think that that's sort of the contrast between the two capitals and the provinces. And finally, you know, Russian punk originally is is taken from Western influence, but it's certainly it. It has evolved into its own for sure. But you've participated in both the American and Russian punk scenes. So how would you compare them? Again, I think this is a that's a good question too. I think this is a another question of where you're experiencing Russian punk. Because if my only experience of Russian punk were in Moscow or St. Petersburg, then I would be tempted to say that there's not much of a difference besides the fact that People are more open and more accommodating and, and more willing to talk to strangers in the Russian scene as opposed to the U.S. where it sort of becomes very hardened and clicky where, uh, you know, if you don't know a certain band member, then it's hard to get into his or her circle. It's not that way in Russia. That, that facade of being a musician and being a fan still sort of doesn't exist. I had, for example, Tedakani and Naive. Dimitri from Terakani and Sasha or Chacha from Naive, who are both celebrities within Russia, I had no problem meeting with them. I I went to their practice space, or I went to Terakani's practice space, and they actually stopped practice. He said, "Okay, I'll I'll do this interview really quick, and you know, we'll get it over with." So I, had, but if I were to do something similar to that and try to interview somebody in the West that is a well-known, I don't want to name any names, well-known. American artist, I would, you know, have to jump through hoops to get any interview with them. And it probably wouldn't be a face-to-face -face interview necessarily. So again, that facade of the musician and the fan isn't really there as much as it is uh, in the West. And then also, um, as I think the case of the provinces show, that high energy of punk rock, which if you considered Nizhny Novgorod to be sort of the equivalent of Boston, then that really illustrates it, that the energy that you see in Nizhny Novgorod, for example, isn't as palpable as it would be in Boston, where, again, all these major cities in the United States are very hardened, and as Sasha says, they've seen it all. That was Alexander Herbert, a graduate student at the University of Chicago, working on modern Russian history. He's been involved in the Russian punk scene extensively for about four years, and has contributed articles to Razor Cake and Maximum Rock and Roll. Along with his degree work in Raising a One-Year-Old, Alexander has been compiling a collection of interviews, fanzines, lyrics, and records on Russian punk rock from 1978 to 2015. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. You can also support the podcast by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to everyone who've contributed. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. <laughs>